Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? My son just turned six years old. He's a sweet kid. For example, I'll often mess with him by claiming that something he's been looking forward to has been canceled. And except for the rare occasion, like when I convinced him that Saturdays were now school days, he absorbs the news quite well. He'll reason and console me for having to break such bad news to him. If he's eating a snack and you aren't, he'll offer you some. If he falls and gets hurt, his first concern is to stop you from worrying about him. He'll smash his knee, then hobble up, repeating that he's okay, even though he's clearly not. I've witnessed him babble through tears that he's okay. I'm a stay-at-home dad. Yeah, you heard right. My name's Jack Luna, and uh, I'm a stay-at-home dad. <laughs> I destroy my back, ignoring lift systems and group homes, and now my fiancée is the breadwinner. She has a career, and I have the ability to suck up my pride and do what a lot of men would consider to be emasculating the social services field doesn't pay shit how much do you think you'd negotiate to be paid if the assignment offered you was to work shifts in a home for the mentally indoor physically disadvantaged wherein you're responsible for all of their personal care oh and some are violent some might die in your shift and if they do you'll be investigated possibly even charged i mean if say one of them falls down the stairs while struggling with you or takes off into the street while out for a stroll, or just simply chokes on their own vomit or something as you work a night shift, you could be charged. Would 12 bucks an hour cut it? Yeah. <laughs> now that I can, I'll pass too. I've put in my time, and besides, in my house everyone's happy, for now at least. Like I was saying, my son just turned six. I'm worried about him. He's at that age where I'm having to let him go out there on his own, and... With another baby due around Halloween, it's inevitable that my eye will draw further and further from between his shoulders. I might have mentioned at some point that I'm paranoid. I see everything coming before it happens, or more accurately, before it doesn't happen. Those incidents when he came up to me crying, grabbing his knee, I could count them on one hand with a thumb and two fingers to spare. Our band-aids are expired. They won't stick. I use the children's polyspore myself on fingernails of mine that I've Chew too low. This kid doesn't just have a dad around. He has a, a bodyguard. And to all the parents rolling their eyes right now, muttering to yourself that he'll be fine, you're probably right. I wish I could be as confident as you all seem to be, though. I... Because while you're so certain that our kids are fine, they're out there working out things amongst themselves. And while I've formed my son into a sensitive, caring young man, a lot of people have created assholes. Little angry assholes who love picking on boys like mine who expect the best from people and aren't equipped to handle bullies. 
What was I supposed to do? Leave him in a hot car once in a while as I smashed a few macros at the bar? Give his mom a shot in the mouth from time to time to keep him aware that the world's an unstable place? Maybe I should have ignored him more. Let him try to find breakfast on the weekends as I lay in a hungover stupor. I just dropped him off at a birthday party where an impromptu water fight was in full swing. I watched him enter with a smile. He shyly took a little gun one of the parents handed him and went to fill it in his sink. And as he filled it, some blank-faced monster strode up and relentlessly super-soaked the side of my son's head. He laughed nervously, clearly shocked by the cold water, but he continued to fill his gun excitedly as this blank-faced kid made fun of how small it was. Soon another kid approached, sensing blood in the water, I suppose, and sprayed my boy's back. Soaking his nice little outfit, I popped on him before we'd excitedly walked over to the party. I watched all of this unfold from the corner of my eye as a Another boy's father gave me an ear-beating about air conditioners. My son shot back once his gun was filled, but it was a small gun. Like I said, it couldn't compete. I called him over and told him that if he didn't want to get soaked, he didn't have to play. You know what he said? It's okay, Dad. Don't worry. And then he jumped back into the assault, almost immediately sputtering as the same kids hit him again and again with full super soakers. This was it, I realized. This was how I was going to have to be tough on him. The lesson I wasn't willing to teach would have to be taught by others, I suppose. The lesson being that life isn't fair, so if you want to find peace in it, you're going to have to fight. I handed a bag with his water bottle, snacks, and sunscreen in it to the birthday boy's mother and said I'd be back in a few. She distractedly smiled and set it by some steps in full sun. Then I left and came home to write this. Actually, I grabbed a super soaker and zipped it back to the party, fully loaded first. I <laughs> I had to restrain myself from pissing in it. I moved that bag into the shade as well, showed my boy where it was. I hate bullies. They come in all forms. Some of the most successful people are bullies. They believe the world is at their disposal. So with that full head of confidence, they easily move up ladders, throwing competition off on the way up, then using said ladder as a tool of amusement allowing others to climb so far before they stick a boot in their face and shake them off. Of course, you have the classic bullies who are taking shit from someone at home then dumping it on smaller kids at school. Then you have guys like the broomstick killer. While researching this episode's monster, Kenneth McDuff, I quickly realized that I was dealing with a horrible bully. McDuff had no regard for anyone's feelings or comfort. He believed the world was his playground and snatched people from it whenever he felt like using someone up. It's simply not true that you can look at a killer's childhood and find the triggers. A guy like Macduff likely came out of the womb with a hard look on his face. There is such a thing as a bad seed. We've all met them in our early years. A playmate who seems to enjoy telling on people. A brother who hits too hard or holds you underwater too long. A sister who cuts off your hair while you're sleeping. A cousin who always wants to tickle. Macduff not only was a bad seed... He had the ultimate cultivator of bullies in his corner. A mother who can see no evil in their child. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is the inaugural episode of Season 2. A season I'm dedicating to a lunatic who's about to embark on a battle he's certain to win. Sure. He's paranoid, so that's the name I'm throwing out there. <laughs> not not judging you, sure. This, this guy who is so similar to me in age and attitude and family, has been handed some news about his health that I know he'll easily turn into 
old news with the power of his attitude and spirit. Expect a special episode where we collaborate. He's a hell of a writer to boot. Love you, Shore Man. A tale from the shore coming soon. Okay, grab the hooch. Roll the weed up, man. Juice the non-bruised fruit. It's a monster. The broomstick killer. Kenneth Allen McDuff. Kenneth Allen McDuff was born March 21, 1946, in the small city of Paris, Texas. McDuff was the fifth of six kids born to John and Addie McDuff, and there isn't much to say about this typically large baby boom blast point family until they moved from the famed small city to the soon-to-be infamed, if I may, small town of Rosebud, Texas, where Kenneth turned six years old. Rosebud, which uh, sits within the Blackland Prairie in central Texas, was and is a typical small country town. It's an area surrounded by farmland, although many of the original independently owned farms were bought out or bullied by larger ag companies, and now, like so many small farming hamlets, old barns stand around awkwardly with no purpose, other than housing stray cats and sheltering the local youth while they wait out their school hours smoking cigarettes, and hurting each other's feelings for sport. I live in one of these small towns, a place that's proud to be small and proud that it hasn't changed much, other than the change that's been forced upon it, of course, by the big city. Tim Hortons? Why the hell? We need a Timmy's. We got a perfectly good bakery in town. (laughs) Our town bakery slogan is, Get your buns in here. I try to go in there, but everyone looks at you when you walk in then they want to talk and shit then the coffee's in a pot in the corner with an open carton of cream that has a fly in the lip you know there's a wet spoon in a sugar dish a communal spoon (laughs) the whole setups uh placed right in front of the regular crew who has nothing but time in their hands to talk about small rumors they've cataloged about you they heard you're at the school now eh nah i quit Uh, really why's that uh None of your fucking business. Then my son starts crying. You know, I don't know. I like the camaraderie of the local bar in the evening, but in the morning, I just want some anonymity. Is that how you say that? Anonymity. Shades on, tight lips for Luna. Plus the Timmy's is in the pharmacy, which is where the booze is sold here. A one-stop shop. Tim Hortons is a popular coffee, everything place in Canada for those out of the loop. Anyways. It's uh, ruin, ruining my town, apparently. <laughs> you guys in the States think you got troubles. Let me tell you. A small town like mine or Rosebud, Texas, has a long memory due to its small population and its people's penchant for repeating what little ever happens in them. A bear walked into my town in the early 90s. I moved here around 2010 and it was one of the first things I learned about my new home. I've overheard versions of the story many times since. Anytime talk of bears or wildlife comes up, which out here is quite a bit. We don't have a serial killer to talk about, but I bet if we did, I wouldn't need to do much research to cover him. Just like a fucking shitload of fact-checking. Old, decrepit barns aren't the only thing that have infinite patience in parts like this. The stories do too. They lean casually on the inner cheek of small town's inhabitants, 
cowboy hat tipped forward, chewing wheat stock, then easily stride to the tip of the tongue when a fresh ear becomes available, springing to life and wrangling the newcomer's attention at the first opportunity. The next time you're traveling through the Blackland Prairie in central Texas, pop into any bar from Waco to Paris to Rosebud and mention the broomstick killer. I've no doubt you'll learn something that I'm about to miss. Macduff's father was a hard-working man who had taken advantage of the Texas construction boom that occurred in the 60s and started up a successful concrete company. He was the boss at work, but at home his wife, Addie, ruled. Addie Macduff was known around Rosebud as the, quote, pistol-packing mama. She'd earned the nickname after her eldest son, Lonnie, had been booted off the school bus for being a jerk and she threatened the driver with a pistol she was said to have always kept handy in her purse. Addie Macduff ran the laundromat, where for the first while her family lived in the back. She was a regular at one of the more fundamental churches in town, and constantly pointed a rigid finger out at the world, but rarely, if ever, turned it in at herself and family. The Macduffs were feared in their time. Rosebud's population has always hovered around 1,500 people, and in towns that small, Certain families stick out. Little tribes that constantly have one representative causing problems for others wherever they're stationed. At daycare, in school, at work, in public, just driving around town or or shutting down the bar late at night. Families like the McDuffs exist everywhere, but are more prominent in places like Rosebud. 1,500 people is about the size of two high schools. In this city, you can escape the social hierarchy of school, but... For those who stick around in a small town, that shit continues into adulthood. Why the picked upon stay, I'll never understand. Some of the men in my town are still bullied boys with wimpy nicknames who believe they're born losers, and it's their lot in life to be forever stuck in a town-wide pushing circle. The Macduffs may have acted like white trash, but they did well financially. This led Addie to deduce that the town's disdain towards them was just jealousy, and any claim of misbehavior by another against one of her brood had to be a fabrication and attempt to take the Macduffs down a peg. Kenneth Macduff was a big kid who would eventually grow to 6'4 and top out at 250 pounds at one point. He performed poorly in school. Macduff was tested as having an IQ between 87 and 92, which is on the very low side of average. I only mention this to confirm that we're not dealing with a cerebral, methodical, future serial killer here you'll find that Kenneth was more of the smash-and-grab type, a brute. He had few friends, if any. When Macduff was in grade six, he was referred to the special education teacher who spent an hour or so a day with him. Macduff refused to speak to this teacher or do any work with her. He was eventually sent back to his class, where he embraced the poor student role and acted up whenever possible, laughing out loud at nothing in particular at times to jar those around him. This was a habit he kept through adulthood, startling fellow inmates and guards whenever an opportunity presented itself. Macduff's older brother Lonnie, who had also been referred to the special educator for having a learning disability and speech impediment, uh, was Macduff's only friend. When I say speech impediment, I, for example, Lonnie would often call himself Wuff Tuff Wani Macduff. <laughs> Not to make fun of people with speech impediments, I'm just saying... Like, that's the type. Wuff, tough, Lonnie McDuff. Um, an example as to why Lonnie McDuff was beloved by Kenneth was 
soon to come in their high school years. Macduff's high school tenure was short-lived. First, another student's baseball glove went missing in the school's principal, Principal Mayo, a World War II vet known affectionately as Iron Man, came down hard on Kenneth when, after Mayo put forth a relentless effort to retrieve the stolen baseball glove, Macduff showed up in his office with it, claiming to have found the glove in a ditch. The glove was covered in black shoe polish, an obvious attempt to disguise it, and the Iron Man saw right through the claim. He just got finished figuring out those conniving Nazis after all, and young Macduff was absolutely no match. When Wuff Wani heard that his brother was on the hook for having stolen the glove, he became enraged, and he pulled a knife on the principal, solidifying himself as his younger brother's truest friend, but also setting off a short chain of events that found him toppling down a set of stairs after having been thwarted at the point of attack versus the Iron Man. Lonnie was so loyal to his younger brother that when Kenneth confided in him at the age of 18 that he raped and slashed a girl's throat, leaving her for dead, Lonnie simply advised that he forget about it and go to bed. This privately confessed murder was never confirmed, but is thought to have probably occurred, along with more than a few unconfirmed Macduff murders. A fight caused Macduff to finally ditch school for good in grade nine. He had grown accustomed to picking on just about anyone he pleased and not face any resistance. But this came to an end when he called a popular young man named Tommy Salmon a chicken shit one day and was challenged to meet in a ravine near the school under a bridge to settle things. Tommy was much smaller than Macduff, like most, but more athletic and a lot quicker. By the sounds of things, the whole spectacle could have played out in any movie or book that's ever presented a school fight scene where the bully finally gets his. A bunch of students showed up, hoping to witness a Macduff get what they deserve. Young Tommy Salmon made Macduff look like the lumbering fool he always was, dodging every attack and landing every counter. Macduff ended up in a headlock, and after absorbing some punishment and searching for a second wind that was never going to form, he finally gave up. The kids who watched all cheered before running home to tell their parents, who smiled and tried not to light up too bright at the news. Soon after this disgrace, Kenneth Macduff dropped out of high school and began working for his father in the concrete business. Tommy Salmon was never served any retribution, but I'm sure, in classic bully fashion, somebody less able to defend themselves eventually paid. The known criminal history of the man who would eventually become known as the broomstick killer started off small with a string of break-ins and thefts from surrounding businesses. Macduff is 18 when he starts dabbling seriously in crime. He's upheld his reputation as a bully and general pain in the ass to this point in Rosebud. He drives a loud motorcycle and is suspected of shooting holes in mailboxes and causing typical mischief to this point. He harasses the young girls and disrespects every young man. At 19 years of age, Kenneth Allen Macduff is sentenced to 52 years in prison after being found guilty of 13 counts of theft and burglary. Burglary is a word I can't say. Spanning three counties. He performed these spur of the moment and without planning, which will continue to be his M.O. through his life of constant crime. He is given four years for each charge, which, lucky for him, are to be served concurrently. Macduff is paroled less than ten months later, an experience that certainly couldn't have fostered a healthy respect for the law and the young delinquent. Empowered him, if anything. Macduff soon returns to prison after violating his parole by fighting. He's released practically right away. 
It's time for Macduff to cause some real trouble. He takes on a younger acquaintance named Roy Dale Green. Green is an impressionable 18-year-old who's happy to listen to everything Macduff claims to be and willing to serve as his underling. Macduff brags to Green of having raped and killed two young women. He tells Green that, quote, Killing a woman is like killing a chicken. They both squawk. End quote. Green would claim that he thought Macduff was just joking around, talking shit all the time, even though he would later confess to having at one point witnessed Macduff hold down a girl and squeeze a tube of Ben Gay into her vagina. Texans weren't anywhere near getting over the assassination of JFK having taken place in their state when on August 1st of 1966, 25-year-old Charles Whitman gathered his things and headed off bright and early to perform the Texas Tower tragedy after having stabbed to death his mother, then later his wife, in the night. Whitman, a former Marine sharpshooter, would kill three more people while climbing to the 28th floor of the University of Texas at Austin's Tower, where he fired randomly for another 96 minutes, killing 11 with shots close to or directly at the heart, and injuring an additional 31, 16 people in total. I should add that one survivor died in 2001 as a result of complications related to injuries sustained during this incident. The Texas Tower sniper would eventually be taken down on the observation deck by police, one of whom was named Houston McCoy. McCoy landed two 12-gauge shotgun blasts directly to Whitman's face, effectively ending the spree and causing Whitman to finally drop his high-powered rifle that was targeting and harming people from as far away as 500 yards. On the 6th of August, less than a week after Whitman's infamous spree, Kenneth McDuff and Roy Dale Green finished up working concrete just after noon. It was a Saturday, so they were likely putting in extra time. They then hit the showers and head off to Fort Worth to have some fun. Roy Dale Green had never been to the big city of Fort Worth. He played with McDuff's thirty-eight pistol that actually belonged to uh, Wani as they made the drive, bringing a schlitz to his lips and nodding whenever McDuff eyed him for a confirmation that the soon-to-be-dubbed broomstick killer was, indeed, slinging some shit about himself or his knowledge that was true or interesting. Once in Fort Worth, Macduff shows the wide-eyed country bumpkin about town. This gets old pretty quick. Macduff, as per usual, is on the prowl for a lady to keep company, and soon meets up with an old flame. He drops Green off at a burger shack, but returns not so long after to pick the boy back up. They drive Macduff's lady friend to a relative's house where she's expected, then take to cruising the limited streets of Everman, Texas. It is now closing in on 10 p.m., and the two are more than a few brews deep. It's time for Green to see the proof in the pudding Macduff's been feeding him for weeks. The vehicle they cruise the streets like a phantom in is a Dodge Coronet, a real bully-mobile by the looks of it, and a classic vehicle from that time. Patsy Cline or some other angel from the era, crooning likely in the ignorant ears of Macduff and Green. The Dodge is sharky oil-eyed driver soon spots a vehicle parked at a secluded baseball diamond behind his school. Macduff eases his ride into position and parks about 150 yards from what now appears to be a large Ford. A 55 he'll soon learn. It's highly likely that Macduff assumes the vehicle to be occupied by a couple. Before Netflix and chill, it was car ride with Phil. <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's the best I could do. 
Okay, Mama, I'm off to the movies with Phil. All right. Don't the two of you go necking now. Oh, Mama, stop it. You know, Phil. It's just a car ride with Phil. <laughs> Anyways, the <laughs> the plan is to strong arm the boyfriend and snatch a girl from the vehicle when McDuff and Green begin their silent trek towards the target. The target? The target. Halfway there, McDuff orders Green to stay put. He'll handle this. Roy Dale Green is armed with a three-foot-long broken broomstick they picked up somewhere earlier. Its faded red paint will soon be touched up. Inside the vehicle, the Ford, three friends chat. The only female, Edna Louise Sullivan, is a typical 16-year-old from this era. She studies hard, is a member of the local church, and volunteers when she can. She plays basketball even though she's petite at just over five feet tall. Louise, as she's known by family and friends, is very pretty. Striking, really. And on this night, she's enjoying some time with her boyfriend of just over a month and his younger cousin. One of the three has written the word Louise on the inside of the back window with a young lady's mascara. Perhaps Louise herself, as the other two closely connected boys chatted about hunting or some other common interests such as music on this quiet summer evening. Robert Brand, the eldest of the trio at 17, was a good-looking kid and, like his girlfriend, had that all-American look from the era. Uh, white, clean-cut, and photogenic, I guess is what I meant by that. He's a good student and working odd jobs to afford things like the guitar he plays at local youth dances and get-togethers. His younger cousin, 15-year-old Marcus Dunham, was visiting from California and had come along with the impression that he'd been be meeting one of Edna and Louise's friends. Apparently the news that Marcus had hitchhiked from his grandmother's to get to his cousin's place for the date had turned this girl off, and now he was third-wheeling, the unwitting leg of a tripod. But Robert surely didn't mind. The two were as close as brothers, sharing a love for the outdoors, hunting, and music. The baby-faced Marcus played the drums, and the two may have been talking of the Rolling Stones, Beatles, or the Righteous Brothers when... Kenneth Macduff presented himself at the driver's side window, brandishing a gun and ordering them to exit. Macduff forces the terrified trio into the trunk of the Ford. Once the lid's shut, he calls over Roy Dale and tells the disbelieving dumbass to get in. They drive the football field and a half back to Macduff's bully mobile, of which Green is ordered to get into and do what he's good at. Follow. The vehicles covertly parade to a secluded back road, and once Macduff's satisfied that they're out of earshot, he parks the Ford. Green does the same with the Dodge, and exits as Macduff opens the trunk and hauls Edna and Louise out by the arm and swings her to Roydale, who was ordered to put the girl in the trunk of the coronet. Macduff holds the two boys down at gunpoint, and when Green returns, he says to him, quote, The guy will good look at me. I'm going to have to kill him. We can't have any witnesses. I'm going to have to knock him off. The boys, likely overhearing, begin to bargain for their lives, but Macduff has decided their fate. He turns and mercilessly begins firing on them like fish in a barrel. They try to dodge and rise out of the way, and it works for a second. Macduff misses, hitting the eldest young man, Robert, in the ear. But Macduff easily adjusts and kills the boy with a follow-up blast to the forehead. Roy Dale jumps at every shot that Kenneth fires, 
He can see that his leader is enjoying this. It's not a dispatch-type execution. Macduff is reveling. Fifteen-year-old Marcus has his arms up. He's staring down at his older cousin in disbelief. He desperately attempts to protect his life with his arms. A, a bullet does hit one of them, and Macduff, seeing this, becomes enraged. He strides up to the open trunk, reaches out his lengthy arm, and grabs the boy's hair with an oversized hand. He points the gun at Marcus's head and unceremoniously ends the pleading boy's life at point-blank range. The night has been scared silent by what it has witnessed. Edna Louise is surely aware that her friends are now dead. She lays petrified in the trunk of the coronet. She knows that her parents won't be worried about her until tomorrow afternoon. The plan had been to stay at her friend's house overnight, the friend who had cancelled last minute, likely saving her own life. Macduff goes to close the lid of the Ford, but the boys are hanging out of it. Rather than adjust them to fit, he gets into the car and backs it up to a tree, somewhat hiding the bodies at first sight of the vehicle. A man on his way to fish the next morning will come across the scene and immediately think it completely ominous. What he discovered in the open trunk surely haunted him for the rest of his days. Teenagers are much closer to the babies they were than the adults they're about to become. And these two boys, from the pictures I've seen, looked frighteningly young to be shot up in the trunk of a car. After having Green wiped down the Ford and muddy the tire tracks of the coronet upon backing out of the crime scene, Macduff drives to another secluded spot 11 miles south in Johnson County, a little town named Egan. There he finds a lonely gravel road surrounded by hayfield and parks once he feels safely isolated. Louise is retrieved from the trunk. It's full dark now, as are the eyes of Macduff. I've looked into the eyes of too many killers in photographs to see if there's anything to indicate what lies beneath. Usually I'll feel something when staring into them, but I can never be sure if it's just my imagination. With Macduff, I received a chill. He had some of the coldest eyes I've ever seen. Louise is shoved into the back seat, and Roy Dale Green exits to give Macduff some privacy. He sits on the trunk and sneaks glances through the back window as Macduff rapes the girl. Macduff at six foot four and Louise at five foot two was a terrible mismatch. I picture a scene straight from an old doo-wop flick. Macduff had the greased, high-waved hair popular to thugs from that time. I'm sure he kept a pack of smokes rolled in the sleeve of his t-shirt. He forced himself upon the squirming girl, then called Roy Dale in. He asks if Roy wants a turn. Roy refuses initially, but Macduff insists he wants to implicate the boy. It doesn't take much coaxing. Green climbs into the back, and under the watchful glare of Macduff, he violates Louise as well. When he's done, Macduff takes his place and rapes the poor girl yet again. At some point, he picks up the broken broomstick and uses it in an unmentionable, sadistic fashion. Roy Dale Green would later say that her screams haunted him, and that he could still hear her having said, quote, Stop. I think you ripped something. End quote. Unfortunately, a monster like Macduff is aroused by such cries. He continued until he was satisfied. When the horror of this rape 
Finally concluded, Macduff told Louise to put on her clothes, surely sparking some hope that she may be released. They then traveled to another desolate road, where Macduff ordered Edna Louise Sullivan to sit in front of the car in the glare of the headlamps. She asked what was going to happen. Macduff told her that he was going to tie her up. Roy Dale was ordered to take off his belt, which he did eagerly, thinking that the whole thing could now be finished if they secured the girl and left her out there. The gun was now useless with all the bullets having been spent, which fed this hope. Macduff grabs the belt as Louise questions why he tie her up. She's not going anywhere. The attempt to maybe cool down her assailant has the opposite effect. Macduff tosses the belt and grabs the broomstick. He then marches towards a scrambling end of Louise, mounts her, pins her to the gravel by sitting on her chest, and presses down on her neck with the broomstick. Edna and Louise struggles mightily. She bucks and kicks, making it difficult for Macduff to strangle her. Macduff orders Roydale Green to grab her legs. He does as he's told, and will later say that he then heard a sound like air being let out of a balloon or air hose. The girl's legs soon stop flailing. Macduff, refusing to let off until he's certain the girl's dead, tells Green to turn the car around as... He continues to press down on Edna's neck, breaking bones with the force. Green does as he's told, then returns to help haul Edna Louise Sullivan's lifeless body over a barbed wire fence. Macduff strangles again for good measure. He's taking no chances. They then hide the body under some brush by an oak tree. As they return to the vehicle, Macduff says to Roy Dale, quote, It was like you kill a possum. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off on limited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog. With my little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it 
occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Catherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. The next day, a Sunday, Roy Dale Green is hanging out with some friends when it becomes apparent that he's not doing so well. Macduff has warned him that he'll be sent to the electric chair if he speaks a word of the previous night's events, but Green's having trouble digesting the grisly secret he holds, and when a news report hits the radio that two boys have been found dead in the trunk of a car, Green breaks down, crying, and confesses to his friends. Roy Dale Green is soon in custody, giving authorities a detailed account of the killings. A massive search gets underway to retrieve the body of Edna Louise Sullivan, who wasn't discovered until the next day due to Roy Dale's uncertainty as to exactly where they had dumped the girl. He gets the search party fairly close with a drawing on a napkin. Roy Dale is along for the search. He looks out over the fields at one point and meekly says, quote, I know she's here somewhere. Of Kenneth Macduff's whereabouts, he's more helpful. Macduff's on a date with a girl named Joanne. The plan to take Macduff down is straight out of a slapstick picture show. Two sheriffs hide in some bushes in front of the girl's house and wait for Macduff to return the girl after their date. When Macduff pulls his Dodge Coronet into her driveway around 10.30 that evening, his headlights illuminate the officers and Macduff slams his vehicle into reverse. One sheriff unloads a shotgun into the vehicle's radiator while the other fires his pistol at the tires. Macduff's date hits the deck as the Dodge limps away from the ambush. Probably should have had the girl's safety in mind at some point there, but, uh, you know, maybe get a better hiding spot and wait until she's safely out of the car. Any plan would have been better than that one. Behind a tree with a frying pan would have topped. (laughs) Macduff spots his date's brother as he makes his getaway and hops into the young man's vehicle yelling at him to drive. Someone's trying to shoot him. Officers soon catch up and Macduff is taken down. His only question is whether or not insurance will cover the damage his beloved coronet sustained from the sheriff's weapons. After a circus trial of which Macduff was carefully watched over through the entirety by a gang of bailiffs, completely out of shape bailiffs, I might add, Kenneth Allen Macduff, who by this point was now widely known as the broomstick killer, was sentenced to death. 
His defense tried half-heartedly to pin the crime squarely on Roydale Green, but one look at Roydale is all you need to know he wasn't the aggressor in the relationship he and Macduff had. Green gave a five-hour-long testimony, and throughout it he trembled noticeably. His arms flailed uncontrollably. He rambled nervously and avoided eye contact with Macduff. He was terrified of the young outlaw, as was everyone. Even Macduff's own lawyers showed nerves around the broomstick killer. It was plain to see that Macduff was a bad man. The bad man from Rosebud, some called him. That is the title of a book written on this case by Gary Laverne, in fact. It's highly recommended by me. Green was sentenced for his part and eventually released in 1979 after serving 13 years, a few of which he spent under psychiatric care for hearing voices and seeing things. Roy Dale Green didn't do easy time. The trial he'd been a part of was big news, and it was no secret that he'd snitched on Macduff. Macduff himself was destined for the electric chair. Many Texans at the time agreed that if there was ever a suitable candidate for the death penalty, it was the broomstick killer. Unfortunately, the death penalty was soon abolished in Texas, and Macduff's sentence was reduced to life, making him eligible for parole. Texas... Even today has an incredible number of people in the prison system, around 172,000 currently, which equates to 0.68% of the 25 million who populate the Lone Star State. If the Texas prison system were a city, it would be the 20th largest in the United States. In Macduff's time, the infrastructure wasn't in place to handle the influx of criminals that came through in the 80s, the war on drugs, Part of the reason Texas has such an indomitable prison system today is because of Kenneth Allen Macduff and what would eventually be coined the Macduff Laws. Macduff hires a lawyer with funding from his ever-loyal family and is able to present a somewhat convincing case to the parole board that Roy Dale Green could have been the killer. He is the only one who officially stated he was at the crime scenes, after all. Macduff never confessed. Macduff actually claims that he was like asleep in an abandoned building and lent his vehicle to Roy Dale Green, but nobody buys it. McDuff attempts to bribe a parole member in 1982 after having already been denied parole five times. He receives time that he's already serving for this indiscretion, and as the years pass, his prospects for release get more and more favorable. He's actually released in 1989. After the board decides Macduff can, quote, contribute to society. Macduff is one of 20 death row inmates to be released, and one of 127 murderers who hit the streets at this time. The prison system was overrun, they said. Well, how about, you know, arresting 150 less pot dealers and keep the killers inside? I don't know, who am I? It's 1989, and the broomstick killer is headed back to Rosebud. He's actually not allowed to be in the area, but the town braces for impact anyways, as a prison-hardened version of the young man who terrorized their way of life two decades previous won't be able to help himself, and just as they fear, he'll soon make a splash. The bad boy from Rosebud is not yet in his mid-forties and is ready to party. He starts drinking immediately and discovers a new love, Crack cocaine. Three days after his release, a young woman, 31-year-old Seraphia Parker, 
goes missing along the famed I-35 corridor, 48 miles south of Waco, and on October 14th of 89, her body is discovered. Macduff is never charged with the murder, but it's widely suspected to be his handiwork. She's been strangled, sexually assaulted, and dumped. Macduff, a now loud, proud, aggressive racist, is soon sent back to prison for violating his parole after threatening the lives of a group of black teens on the streets of Rosebud, a violation that should have sent him back behind bars for good. However, his pistol-packing mama put up the cash to have a couple of attorneys evaluate her son's prospects for release, and shortly, the broomstick killer is back out, still not yet 45 years old and feeling more untouchable than ever. He's released on December 18th of 1990, just in time for Christmas. Swell. While locked up, Macduff's only friend in life had been killed. His older brother Lonnie met his end after harassing a man's wife in a trailer home, and this man, Larry was his name, blew Lonnie away with two gun blasts to the head, an incredibly intense crime of angry passion, no doubt, as Larry's children were in the home when he took Lonnie's life. They ran from the room, having to jump over the body to get to their mother, who looked on in horror. Larry would later make parole, an event that shocked even Kenneth Macduff. I mentioned this to let you know that Macduff vowed vengeance for his brother, but when he got word that Larry had said he'd love to rid the world of another Macduff, the coward, now known as Big Mac, piped down. The years in prison hadn't changed Macduff's mettle but they had given him credibility amongst lowlifes of whom Macduff, not Soria, uh, Big Mac, as he's now calling himself, surrounded himself with. Big Mac's parents didn't want him staying with them, so he bounced around amongst family members, staying as long as they could stand him or until he'd used them up sufficiently. Lonnie had always been Macduff's rock, and without him, Kenneth was all over the place. He received a credit card from his mother to get on his feet, but... She soon tired of paying it off. Macduff still would relentlessly hit his parents up for cash, and if they refused, he'd just steal some tools from his father and pawn them. Big Mac was heavy into crack cocaine now, a drug I myself had motivations towards in my early 20s, but that's a story for another podcast, perhaps. Crack can make good people do bad things, so I'm not surprised by its effect on someone like Macduff. It was all hookers, crack, and alcohol for Big Mac. He fit in well with Waco's seedy side, spending plenty of time in an area known as the Cut, or as Mac liked to call it, the Corner. Even amongst the thieves, drug addicts, and hustlers, Macduff was detested. His appetite for crack was so well known that some took to calling him Crack Mac. I like Big Crack better, it speaks to his incredibly big mouth that he ran constantly, always taking over the room with his mix of true, exaggerated, and completely fabricated, but equally vile self-promotional stories of sexual conquests, robberies, assaults, and even murders. One lady friend of Macduff's recalled looking out over a picturesque lake with him in a rare moment of silence. When Big Mac inevitably spoke, he shared his thoughts on how it would be a good spot to dump a body, attach some chains to its feet, and cut its belly open to ensure it sinks. Macduff soon realized that he needed a scam. It came to his attention that the government would pay for his schooling, even set him up in a dorm room and make available three meals a day in the cafeteria. It's an incredible opportunity for a guy like Macduff. He enrolled in a machine shop operations course and was soon bullying around classmates again. 
Big Mac was big man on campus at the Texas State Tech Institute in Waco. He let everyone know that if they wanted drugs, he was their runner. Of course, he'd take a cut, and oftentimes, if he knew a student had money, he'd bleed them dry. Regardless, most were in awe of this brazen, street-smart former convict who appeared to contain zero conformity. Hooker streamed in and out of his room, and it was soon apparent that they had a wild man on campus, a man who perhaps belonged behind bars still. Macduff rarely showed up to class, but managed to make average grades. At one point, Macduff picked up work at a quick-pack convenience store. He stays long enough to learn the routines about three weeks before. An opportunity to drink beer with some friends causes him to quit on the spot, leaving the store manager slack-jawed. He meets his manager's wife at one point. Her name is Melissa Northrup, and Big Mac will continuously speak of how attractive she was and all alone out there on the graveyard shift most nights. Macduff meets a new Roy Dale Green type named Vance Hank Worley at a trailer park party. Nothing against trailer parks, by the way, if I'm saying it in a funny way. It's just where some of this activity happens to be going down. I'm a huge fan. It's like a constant party where everyone seems to be having some kind of problem with everyone else. <laughs> I try to just you know, enjoy the patio landers myself whenever I'm at a trailer park. Which, as I get older, is becoming less and less. But man, those places are alive. The last villages of North America. Everyone on their stoop. Everyone knows everyone's business. Hank Worley stands at five foot six and weighs around 130 pounds. Macduff's type for a friend. He's a sounding board, or in Macduff's case, an absorption board. He unloads his trove of tired, ever-changing stories into Worley's ear and. The man never fails to nod his interest in them. The two begin palling around. Big Mac enjoys Worley's belief that drinking should be an all-day, all-the-time activity. Worley enjoys being associated with such an intimidating character who always has crack. On the evening of September 1st, 1991, McDuff's pickup swerves through a red light in front of a squad car and is pulled over. After appraising the brewery, McDuff is running in the cab of his vehicle. Officers arrest Mac that let his passenger, Hank Worley, go, as he doesn't appear to be too inebriated, one of the benefits of being constantly sauced. It's pretty difficult to discern when a drunk is drunk. They could just be tired and stupid. McDuff is charged with a DWI, which should have sent him back to prison as it was a clear parole violation, but of course he was released with a fine and two years probation. About a month later, on October 10th of 1991, Macduff trades the talk in for some real action. It's highly likely that he's been killing on the side for a while now, but on this occasion, we have proof of recidivism. Macduff is cruising for a date in the cut in the early moments of October 10, 1991, when he comes across Brenda K. Thompson, a 37-year-old street worker who was a recent fixture in the area after having been paroled in Waco after trouble in Fort Worth. Brenda K. was a petite woman, Five foot five and 115 pounds. In her last photos, which are mug shots, she looks emaciated, more than likely drug addicted. She was a fast talker, always polite, but her years on the streets had caught up with her. In the cut, she was known as Debbie, Debbie Johnson, or Debbie Ward. Everyone in the cut was someone else. People molt versions of themselves like snakeskin when they choose to traverse the underbelly of places like the cut. 
Macduff had likely been looking for another girl, Virginia Deanne Moore, on that night. Gina, as she was known, was another petite prostitute who stood at 5'4 and weighed around 110 pounds. She had recently, quote, clipped Big Mac, which is slang for lifting a wallet. All the women hustling in this area at the time agreed that that had been a bad move. Big Mac was the last John any of them would consider ripping off due to his behavior on dates. I guess I should make clear that dates are what these exchanges are often labeled in an attempt to legitimize them as legal. Macduff was notorious for only being interested in painful sex. He couldn't complete the ritual without sadism involved. If a girl feigned or expressed pleasure, it would anger him. That wasn't what he was paying for. After this clipping, Macduff had cruised the cut, asking anyone who knew Gina where she was. We'll get to her in a moment, unfortunately, but for now, she's being processed at the station as a sting has descended upon Big Mac's corner. According to Gary Laverne's book on this case, Brenda Thompson was likely in an isolated spot when Macduff picked her up. Street workers, prostitutes, are adventurers on some level. The ultimate unknown is standing in a miniskirt, small, helpless, beside your wit, and alone at night in a place like the cut, hoping for a fish, but at the same time praying that a shark doesn't scoop you up. The cut with all its inhabitants who made it their business to have an ear to the street, was about to show how dangerous and truly lonely it was. Macduff approached a police road stop that had been set up that night to attack the sex trade problem of the area. As Macduff's red pickup that he had on loan from his father approached the checkpoint, an officer turned his attention to it as it seemed to be hesitating. Suddenly the passenger side of the windshield broke from the inside and the officer could see a woman, whose legs appeared to be bound and her arms possibly tied behind her back, kicking up at the windshield. This was Brenda Thompson, and she was clearly signaling for help. Macduff accelerated through the checkpoint, causing three officers to jump for their lives as the pickup squealed through. Everyone on the street recognized Macduff's vehicle. Brenda's fellow street workers looked out apathetically, shaking their heads and muttering how crazy Big Mac was how crazy Brenda was for getting in the vehicle. The officers gave chase, but Macduff was way ahead and doing everything right to escape. He hit one-way streets, traveling the wrong way with his headlights out, and eventually got away. He takes his bound prisoner to a secluded, wooded area and brutally tortures her until she finally dies. Her skeleton is not discovered until Macduff gives up its location seven years later as he attempts to trade its whereabouts in as a get-out-of-the-death-chamber card. Incredibly, nothing comes of this incident. Macduff is questioned by police later. They even identify his vehicle, which has been wiped clean, yet still has a broken windshield, as the truck that ran the checkpoint. But because the officers didn't bother to file a report on the incident, the whole thing simply goes away. To this day, it's unclear why nothing came of this. Macduff himself thought he'd have to flee the area, but after learning he wasn't being pursued to answer for the incident, he just shrugged it off. Life went on, as per usual, in the cut. Five days after Deborah Thompson's public kidnapping and eventual murder, Macduff catches up to Regina Moore, Gina, 
the girl who had clipped him. It was well known amongst those who frequented the cut that Macduff had likely killed Brenda Thompson. It was also known that Macduff wanted revenge on Gina. One street worker even shared later that Macduff had said to her about this, quote, When I find her, I'm going to kill that bitch. She ripped me off and I'm going to kill her. End quote. Gina is last seen in Macduff's vehicle. Some reports claim that the two were arguing. Her body is discovered after Macduff's eventual arrest. It appears that Macduff killed recklessly and without much fear of being caught at this time. A rampage took place in the cut, basically in front of everyone, including, at one point, the police themselves. Regina Moore's mother attempted to work the case herself as it appeared her daughter's disappearance was of no concern to police, just another unpredictable street girl who moved along. Macduff is believed to have been responsible for another murder around this time, about three weeks before Deborah Thompson and Gina Moore go missing. 23-year-old Cynthia Gonzalez is found shot to death in a creek bed six days after having gone missing from a car wash in Arlington. She was the owner of an adult entertainment business that provided entertainment for special occasions. On this day, she had been on the way to a strippergram appointment when she went missing. The fact she went missing from a car wash is about to have a major significance in this next chapter of Macduff's murderous spree. I feel the need to apologize for burning through those three murders, but the information on these cases is sparse due to how inconsequential they appear to have been deemed. It's starting to become a podcast dedicated to exposing the ineptness of Texas law enforcement from these times. <laughs> I'll lay off the Lone Star State for a while after this, Houston is one of Dark Topic's biggest supporters, according to my stats, so I thought I'd do a couple cases to shout out Texas. You're welcome. More like a shout at than a shout out so far, though, from uh, from here on in. I'll show my appreciation by leaving your, your state alone, how about? <laughs> on December 6th of 1991, just before midnight, an Austin police officer who was on patrol comes across a fire at a small business named... I can't believe it's not yogurt. When the flames are finally put out, a horrifying scene is revealed. Four teenage girls lay dead inside. Three stacked on top of one another, all have been shot in the head, are bound, and show signs of having been sexually assaulted. This unsolved case is famously known as the Austin Yogurt Shop Murders, and remains unsolved to this day. Macduff was most definitely in the area, but was ruled out as a suspect uh, due to his description of a man who was in the area at the time. He had a cowboy hat um, and a mustache graying at the temples, I believe, and Macduff, who had a cowboy hat, he was even known as cowboy to some people, um, was usually clean-shaven, so he was dismissed. Macduff actually admitted to having been responsible for this massacre later in his uh, life, closer to his death. But Macduff talked a lot, I mean a lot of shit. This case was thoroughly covered by True Crime Garage, um, episodes 81 and 82. The title of that, uh, that two-parter was Austin Yogurt Shop Murders, if you're interested in learning more. It's a good episode. Unfortunately, I have a confirmed Macduff slaying I need to get to that occurred in Austin as well, less than a month after this tragedy, between Christmas and the New Year. December 29th, 1991. 
Big Mac had traded in his father's damaged pickup truck for a tan 85 Thunderbird, an updated bully mobile of which he was fond of due to it having limited escape points, being a two-door with a lot of space in the back for uh, activities. 28-year-old Colleen Reed had just finished depositing a Christmas check from her father when she pulls her Mazda MX-5 into a 24-hour car wash in Austin. This exchange at the ATM is caught on camera, providing the final images of her before she's snatched away. It's very eerie. It's her misfortune that Macduff and his new yes-man, Alva Hank Worley, are in the area, and Macduff is looking for a woman to, quote, use up. As Colleen soaps down her vehicle just after 9 p.m., Macduff, who has drawn the attention of some people out front of a house nearby, drives the Thunderbird the wrong way down the street to access the car wash, where he spotted the lone woman. He rumbles into one of the other stalls and tells Worley to be ready. Macduff strides over to the stall where Colleen Reed is innocently washing her car and enters like a wraith, snatching the small woman up and dragging her over to his vehicle. The group who had noticed Macduff's reckless driving heard a scream unlike any of them had ever heard before. They rushed to the car wash, but by the time they got there it was deserted, save for the Mazda which sat abandoned in a stall, soap suds sliding off its frame. Worley is ordered to hold the thrashing gun lady down in the back as Macduff makes his getaway. Once they've made some distance from the scene, he switches spots and has his accomplice drive. What Kenneth Macduff does next isn't easy to retell. The details of Macduff's depravity are only known to us in a couple of cases, the cases where he brought along a friend. We can safely assume that every known and unknown woman Macduff murdered went through something similar to what I'm about to share. As Hank Worley drives, he glances in the rear view consistently, unable to keep his eyes off of the horror unfolding in the back of the Thunderbird. Macduff rapes Miss Reed in every conceivable way, something he liked to call going around the world. Many street workers who had dated Macduff attested that this was a horrible game he played that made even the toughest of them hesitate to do business with Big Mac again and to warn other girls to avoid the monster. He taunts as he abuses, and when Colleen fights back, which she does on multiple occasions, he beats her down, at one point forcing her head down on him, making Worley believe by the sounds of things that she's going to choke to death. Macduff then ties the beaten woman's limbs behind her and lights a cigarette. He begins burning her genitals with it, the Thunderbird is filled with screams and the dumb laughter Macduff was known for admitting. Worley claims that at this point he volunteers to have a turn so that he can give the poor woman a break. Macduff takes the driver's seat while Worley has his way. Some break. The rape and torture continues as the Thunderbird makes its way back to the Falls County area and the home turf of these brutes. Macduff drives to a secluded area near his parents' home and yanks his captive out of the vehicle. She's still bound. He rapes her again, then attempts to force her down on himself, but Colleen has had enough. She bites him, hard. Macduff cocks his enormous hand back and slaps her full force. 
Warley hears a snap, and it's possible her neck is broken by the blow. Macduff lights a cigarette and kneels down to burn the poor woman some more, but she's not responsive. He piles her lifeless body back into the vehicle, drops a shell-shocked Hank Warley off at home, and drives off to bury Miss Reed along the bank of a nearby river called the Brazos. Seven years later, when all this is mercifully over, Macduff will tell investigators where to find her after making a deal that reduces a drug charge against one of his nephews. When recovery crews spend hours digging without luck, Macduff is secretly moved off a death row and brought to the location where he spent some of his own childhood. He points at one of the diggers and says to move it one blade length over. Colleen Reed's body is immediately recovered. Macduff manages to pass his courses somehow, and by the end of February of 92, he's optimistic that this extremely low lifestyle of his is about to come to an end when he interviews for a job in his new field. On March 1st of 92, he's likely brooding over the fact that he's been passed over for this position. Maybe something to do with his extremely questionable criminal record. (laughs) I myself have raised eyebrows with a dropped mischief charge I picked up when I was 18. It shows up on the more thorough checks required for certain jobs, as well as every time I cross a border. I'll bet a parole after 20 years serve for a triple homicide makes an appearance on one of those printouts, making it maybe difficult to find work for a guy like McDuff. Anyways, Big Mac is not too happy about this as he drives his recently maintenanced yet still questionable Thunderbird into Waco. He spent the night previous smoking crack and causing all kinds of trouble trying to create cash from his mother's credit card, buying cartons of cigarettes and attempting to sell them on the street to fund his party. As he drives, he likely experiences broken memories of standing in the middle of a dangerous neighborhood yelling out, All I want is some crack and a whore. The events of this wild night and more are further detailed in the book The Bad Boy from Rosebud. Macduff was a non-stop maniac. I'm not proud to mention my dabblings in the world of harder drugs like crack, and I really doubt I'll go there in a future episode, maybe one for the Lunabin, but I will say that a crack hangover is kind of similar to what I imagine losing your soul would feel like. You feel absolutely empty. Not only do you feel bad physically, you feel extreme guilt as you've likely emptied your bank account and pockets on the drug and put yourself in situations that only a drug like that can motivate you to be a part of. Lucky for me, I was in and out, and young, but I definitely felt it grabbing onto my ankles trying to hold me there. I highly doubt Macduff experienced much guilt in his life, but I'm certainly he was in a sour mood when, while driving near the gas station that he used to work at, his car breaks down in the middle of the night. The only thing that likely perks him up is that maybe that girl is working. He hasn't stopped talking about robbing that place or doing something about the wife of the man who had trained him since he quit so abruptly. He abandons the Thunderbird, lights a cigarette, and begins lurching through the night towards Quick Pack Number 8. 
a store that sits in a fairly desolate part of a bad area in Waco, and indeed has a solo female working the graveyard shift on this unfortunate occasion. Melissa Northrup is on the phone with her husband Aaron, talking about how she can't wait to leave the quick pack. She has been taking courses, as has Aaron, and the two are on the upswing with their life's plans. They've had their problems since Macduff worked there, separating for a time, but were working things out for the sake of their two children and now another on the way. The 22-year-old is two and a half months pregnant. Aaron has since moved on from the store, but he spends time with Melissa on her night shifts. He knows it to be a bad area and doesn't like her to be alone out there. He had, in fact, already been in there for a while earlier in the night between 1 and one thirty, but went home to rest so he could care for the kids in the morning while Melissa slept. During their separation, Melissa dated an ex-con for a bit, who had been bothering her still. Police had actually stopped into the store a few hours earlier, and she spoke to them of the harassment. Aaron was keeping an even closer eye on his young wife because of this. Around 3.45, while Melissa's on the phone with Aaron again, a man walks into the store, and she lets Aaron go. Aaron would call her back shortly, but there was no answer. This is around four in the morning now. He calls over and over again, but no answer, and eventually he decides to go check on her for himself. When Aaron arrives at the store, he immediately notices that Melissa's vehicle is missing. He runs into the store where a confused customer waits for service. Aaron goes to the register and hits the no-sale button. Just as he fears, it's empty. He calls 911, then spots a notepad on the counter. There are a list of names written on it. He quickly realizes that they are potential baby names. McDuff had entered the quick pack like a bull. He robbed the register of 250 bucks and basically stole the terrified clerk away from the till. Even though he'd been out of prison for a couple of years now, he's behaving as though he were an escaped mental patient from a horror movie. The absolute definition of a homicidal maniac. After using Melissa's vehicle to push his Thunderbird into a haphazardly parked position, Macduff hits the highway in the tired, burnt-orange Buick Regal and speeds north. Police back at the scene are certain that either the girl's ex-boyfriend or her husband is involved in the abduction and start their investigation immediately in that direction. Macduff drives 100 miles to a very remote part of Dallas County near a small hamlet named Combine. It's all country roads and farmland out there, and he soon finds himself getting caught up in the mud of one particularly remote back road. Finally, he's stuck, so he pushes his captive at the side door and exits behind her, careful not to put his feet in the mud and create tracks. Macduff then forces Melissa Northrup to walk 1.5 miles to a flooded gravel pit, where he ties her up with her shoelaces, then no doubt brutally rapes her. He then murders the pregnant woman and tosses her into the water. It'll be almost two months before a fisherman comes across her body. It's almost dawn when Macduff exits the remote area. The sky is still a beautiful blanket of stars. The sun hesitating to peek over Texas, in case something else horrible had happened the night before. Macduff stuffs his hands in his jean pockets and pulls his baseball cap down low. He saunters away from the scene. It's a cold dawn, and he's spotted walking the dirt roads by at least one motorist. Macduff is last seen in the area by a husband and wife who opened the door to him that morning. 
Macduff explains he's been in a fight with his old lady and is destitute. He wonders if he could have a sandwich. The man of the house watches Macduff suspiciously and makes a show that he has a shotgun in hand. His wife gives Macduff some beans and then sees him off. It's not understood how he managed to move on from this remote part of Texas that morning. Likely he hitchhiked. Macduff then initiates a plan that shows rare forethought. He heads away from Texas. Soon his vehicle is discovered near the quick pack, and after the pistol-packing mama phones her son in missing a couple days later, the light bulbs finally turn on. Macduff is considered the prime suspect in the abduction. Investigators begin speaking to acquaintances of his, namely Hank Worley, who by now is growing a gilt beard and drinking heavily, even for him. A nationwide manhunt is underway to finally tuck the broomstick killer away. (laughs) I'm sorry, man, I wrote the worst shit here. In a closet. America's Most Wanted gets in on the act after McDuff manages to elude capture for close to a month. It's amazing what we're capable of if forced to perform. McDuff had dicked around Waco for years, leeching off his family and using up acquaintances. But now, with only 250 bucks in his pocket and no vehicle, he manages to escape Texas and land a job in Kansas City, Missouri as a waste collector. He takes on the alias Richard Fowler, but even on the run, and most certainly in a position where he should lay low, Macduff manages to get arrested for soliciting a prostitute and is fingerprinted by Kansas City PD. When John Walsh hits the airwaves with the unconscionable story of the broomstick killer and a second whack for Big Mac, that's my personal title, by the way, almost titled the pod that, but it felt like a little much, a second whack for Big Mac. <laughs> a co-worker recognizes Macduff as the man he knows as Richard Fowler and calls it in. The prints on file from the prostitution bust are sent to the FBI and a match to Kenneth Allen Macduff is soon established. On May 4th of 1992, Six special agents take Macduff down as he travels to a landfill south of Kansas City. Alva Hank Worley is granted immunity for returning state's evidence. After a wild trial of which Macduff has to be removed and at one point restrained, he is sentenced to death by lethal injection. On November 17th of 1998, he finally pays. I wouldn't say the price, uh, but a price for his crimes. His last meal request is a steak. They don't have steaks, so he gets some hamburger shaped like one. I made a replica for myself the other night, and it fucking sucked big time. I I had it with ketchup because I figured that's what a guy like him would eat it with. His final words are, quote, I'm ready to be released. Release me. The state does so in a much more humane way than Macduff did for his untold number of victims. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Thank you. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.